Hey, this is George. This is Awonke. And I'm Amr. And this is Immaterial Thoughts. Okay, everybody. Here is a little story for you of a uh, time that tech failed us, all of us, really. Um, it's already like two days after uh, Awonke's birthday. So happy fucking birthday, Awonke. And um, George reaches out to me with a great idea of getting Awonke a gift, which is uh, sending him a couple of ingredients to make a Negroni. Um, great idea, beautiful. I just need to execute. So I go on Drizzly. Um, I find actually the first idea was, you know, let's get him uh, a, a sort of like a funky Negroni with like this purple gin. Uh, that I found, made the order, placed it, paid. An hour later, I get an email. The payment didn't go through. I thought it's something wrong with my card. There's no issue. The payment actually was taken on my card. I was like, hmm, weird. Let me try again. Tried again, different store, still on Drizzly. I get the same issue, payment failed. So at this point, I'm frustrated. I'm like, I want to give this gift. And then I was like, you know what? Uber Eats, let's deliver it with Uber Eats. I go on Uber Eats, I tell George, you know what? I'm not going to be done until I figure this shit out. I go on Uber Eats, place the order, give him like three different bottles of like uh, gin, uh, Campari, vermouth, looking good. Um, Even send an orange slice or whatever place the order, all going well. I told George, it's locked down, great. And then an hour and a half later, I get a call by the guy who's supposed to deliver it saying the place doesn't have gin. Well, at this point, like, fuck me. So Awanke, like, happy, super happy birthday. And you owe, uh, we owe you, actually. Um, and Drizzly also owes you a uh, big glass of Negroni whenever whenever we see you. Um, so yeah, man, happy birthday. We love you. And I'm sorry it didn't go through, but uh, I promise, I promise we'll make it up uh, and fuck technology. So uh, a little bit out of order here for the podcast listener, but earlier this morning in our chat, I shared uh, this article on um, a sustainable manufactured modular home. Um, that is kind of being touted as a good example of how to create a really nice looking uh, modular home that's small. I mean, I think it's like 400 square feet or something like that. Um, But the idea is that it doesn't consume any fossil fuels uh, once it's in existence. And from what I understand um, is minimizing the production lines, uh, you know, contribution to the use of fossil fuels. Um, so one of the things that Awanke responded back in text, which I, I am going to casually ask him to, to redo an audio, um, is the pricing, um, and trying to get an understanding of the pricing, um, and how much it would cost. And this kind of like harks back to conversations that Awanke and I have had over beers years and years ago when we were all allowed to be in person and when we lived in the same city, um, about just the constraints of modular architecture and how, Market forces, uh, environmental forces like just weather um, and production line issues can really make or break an entire project. And this this is like seems like one of those where they're, of course, not telling you how much it costs, because I'm sure that it costs 
way, way, way more than anyone would ever pay for it because they've only produced one. Um, and the ability to actually make this thing a real mass manufactured, uh, you know, product effectively can change the pricing dr drastically just by trying to get enough orders to, you know, uh, reserve the floor of a manufacturing space for a certain amount of time. Um, where if, if those orders don't come in, the whole thing collapses and then you either need to make the other clients pay more for these homes or you don't deliver anything at all. Um, so curious to hear your feedback on this too, because I think it's actually where architecture should be heading um, and learning much more from the kind of tech responsiveness to customers and the environment world that uh, the old Stalgy architecture world has not updated to. I will happily oblige and uh, send you a voice note. I apologize in advance. Uh, I'm walking the, the streets of Round Rock, Texas right now. So I'm sure you're, uh, I got my headphones in, but I'm sure you can hear the traffic in the background. If it's unclear, I'll, I'll send it again. But I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of sustainability and all things uh, ESG. My complaint and my observation has been though that um, because of some of these market dynamics that you mentioned, right? Um, the pricing is always going to be the biggest barrier. Um, when these ideas come out, there are no kind of unit economics that, that support it. Um, in that, right, when you're building something unique and custom, obviously it's going to be expensive because there's no economies of scale. But my comment was was more so in that like if we are going to build a sustainable future right it's a complete circle jerk up until we actually make these solutions accessible to the normal average individual i pointed to example around electric vehicles right i mean tesla i believe has got the best cars on the planet but the cheapest tesla is like $60,000 stock and if you want to have like the full self-driving capability and some of the other trims which are, are kind of nice that's an $80,000 car obviously the vast majority of people can't afford that now the idea was I think three years ago they announced that you know the the goal and the idea is to have a cheaper EV a $25,000 Tesla right I think it was like by 2025 it is now 2022, the Model Y is $60,000. And if you look at the second-hand market, right, um, a second-hand Tesla is not that much cheaper. It might be five to $10,000 cheaper. Now, that is, what, five years post that announcement? And that's because of, 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 of two things, in my opinion, right? One, the demand outpaces the supply of these cars, right? They, they, they don't have infinite supply right like they're, they're building these things as a waiting there's a backlog and so the demand is outstripping the supply and number two there's not much um there's not much market dynamics that are pushing the price cheaper because people you still view the car as a luxury right and so this kind of so translating that ev example back into this sort of modular architecture example right like until this type of innovation is accessible to the vast majority of people out there, then like 
I don't see much of the value. Then it's just another cool um, thing that the elite can afford to do, but nobody else can. And then if that's the case, if only 5% of the world, or 5% of the US population have access to this, is this even sustainable? Is it actually creating a dent? Um, and that's kind of, you know, where my, my comment was going uh, a little bit earlier uh, in the day. So I think um, just in response to the, uh, the continuation of this architectural conversation here, I think first off, Awanka, when it comes to any of the, you know, any of the modular or we'll call it product-based architecture, I think you actually have more insight than you would realize. And probably the insight that's missing from many of the architecture companies who are trying to take this kind of thing on, um, i.e. understanding market forces, pricing, you know, supply chain these are all things that most architects don't really have to deal with they have to deal with the the you know the availability of materials and and different products to put their buildings together but not necessarily uh you know figuring it out off site you know it's it's left in the hands of the contractor to kind of deal with so there's a little bit of a change in the agency here of kind of what the role is of the the you know the architect versus the building maker and what where is that that line to your you bring up a really fascinating comparison with the tesla example um and it, it, it made me immediately like realize kind of what you were getting at right that there's a barrier to entry which is the sustainable problem um because of the complexity of it and because of the supply chain and those sort of things and to kind of expand this conversation uh, back, I think it was 2016 or 2017, um, there was a South American architect who won the Prisker Prize, um, which is like the most renowned architectural prize you can win. Uh, I think his name is, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but Alejandro Aravera, I think. Um, in any event, totally different approach to, you know, giving effectively the, the, the $15,000 Tesla. To, but in architecture terms. So similar idea about trying to make a modular architecture sort of for the masses, but uh, instead of using, you know, this sort of prefab, bring it to the site, set it up. Uh, instead, they were building half of a house in, um, in, in as townhomes, right? So imagine one complete line of houses down a block that are like townhomes that you, you know, similar to what you might find in like Brooklyn or, or an American city like that, right? But instead, they're only building half of it. So it's sort of house, empty lot, house, empty lot, house, empty lot. But the lot itself is on one pad. So basically what they did is they said, we don't have enough resources to give you a full house. The government can't pay for that. But what we can do is we can ask you, you as the person who's going to occupy this dwelling, ask you what you need. And they did. They did a survey with the people and they, they basically, you know, said we can pay for uh, like, I think it was like you can get a shower um, or um, I think it was a shower or something else. Uh, maybe it was a dishwasher or something like that. Um, but we can't do both. Um, but we'll configure the house and the plumbing such that you can add that later. And they built and designed the rest of the house and the structure such that you could continue to build it out as you need. Um, so that you could grow the thing and not have to find a new one when it comes time to actually expand or you have the means to actually do so. So I think what's the interesting comparison, what made me think of that is 
when you're comparing it to the Tesla, it it makes me think more of of the GM project that's coming out, which is the the EV platform, where you can build your own EV on top of this platform. And they're trying to make make it such that there are so many of these platforms that the overall price of it would come down, um, and it would in one sort of system have your you know, the entire motor is battery and everything. And you're literally just building the thing on top of it. Uh, but in any event, could be uh, worth interesting comparison and, and conversation. So uh, good luck on that tournament today, man. All right. So on the architecture side um, and the modular architecture, you guys bring up, um, not sure if intentionally, but one of, one of my favorite topics probably in architecture, which was um, uh, case study houses. I'm not sure, Owanke, if you know about case study houses, but these were um, multiple architects in, I believe, the 40s, 50s, 60s, after the war had ended and um, soldiers came back to the United States or kind of like, um, especially actually, it, it's an issue that happened in, in Southern California because most of them were stationed in Southern California, but then they went back to like, for example, they came back to Maine after the war had ended and, um, and they've told their family, like the soldiers came to their families and said, yo, Southern California is amazing. We should move there. Right. So a lot of the, I think some of, some of the major case study houses that I know were built in Southern California, like Eames House and Stoll House. And the whole goal of it was we wanted like cheap houses that modular or not, but cheap houses and relatively sustainable. Some, some architects went to the sustainability route. I think Eames House was made out of like, you know, uh, plastic panels and, and some other like um, fiber, like glass panels or whatever it is. Um, but they were similar to this they were they as an idea as a challenge as an architecture challenge it succeeded to bring up those innovations and, and way of making houses a new way of making houses but as a solution to the problem of oh we have all these soldiers coming back home and we don't have places for them it failed uh, because none of these houses which were a prototype at one point turned into actual houses um, that were mass produced and uh, used um, and, and actually became um, like a, a, a provided to the public for reasonable prices. Um, so as a project, it's kind of, it kind of failed, but it produced some of my favorite, honestly, architecture. Um, but you see it and they turn like now, I think most of these houses, I don't know. I don't think they, they have people living in them and they're like, what, 18, maybe like maybe more, maybe in the thirties. I don't, I don't, I don't know how many, I think maybe 30 houses that they're around the country. Um, but they were, they were built to such high standard and, and, and uh, that even today, I feel like they, they, they inspire, they do inspire kind of a new architecture um, thinking, like even to this point. So I don't think like, I have, a, I have a different take on this where like not because maybe the cosmic project maybe fails or not gets mass produced, um, but to me, somebody has to push those envelopes and has to kind of show to the world that these things are possible 
Now, it's up to us and up to the government or whatever, whatever, whoever kind of has the money or the control to turn those into like actual solutions. Um, but, you know, these, these concepts and prototypes are uh, still super important to, 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 to be created. So, yeah, that, that's my two cents. Yeah, I, those, th that's a great point, Amr. Like all of those case study houses an attempt to kind of like post-war fix or, or like fresh start in a way of the American home or homes in general, but I think rooted, like you mentioned in, in California and others. Um, the funny thing about the Eames house to me in particular is it was the one that was the most like manufactured. It was made of like the most pieces, right? And the whole thing was like, oh, well, you could, you could, reconfigure it or you could move it once they build it it never moved that was it it was there and it like there's something ironic about that um you know about the like the vision not meeting the actual reality of what the thing is uh which is something i think i think that we still are dealing with when it comes to like any of these modular type homes or or modular type architecture in general is that it's always rooted in a certain technology and with a certain amount of constraints that that don't match the vision that is ultimately there whether it be community or pure aesthetic or the ability to move the thing and you know i mean there were some that were like these you know octagonal shaped homes that were supposed to be like helicoptered into the mountains and dropped in place and you know they, they did it once and they put it there and that was that and it was cool cool case study but like Again, to the repeatability thing, I don't think that was there. It does remind me though of um, a 99% Invisible episode from a while back about uh, the Sears kit homes, which I think was actually an interesting attempt. And when you when you mentioned like, you know, I don't know who would do this, whether it's like government or you know other private parties or or something. Um, I think the, the Sears kit home actually got the closest. Um, it was basically you would order this home, you could pick it out of the catalog, and then they would just send you every single piece of the house that you needed, like on a whole series of trucks and deliveries from the concrete to all of the wood studs, uh, you know, all the plywood insulation, all, you know, the whole nine yards, uh, and you would do it yourself. And that was like the way that they were trying to modulate. And, and I think that was actually fairly successful. I think there was a handful of them actually worked like enough that it was affordable um, for people. But again, ultimately, like if you're having somebody else put something together, like everybody has seen someone put together an Ikea piece of furniture and you're like, that is not tight enough or whatever, right? Imagine that with a whole house. <laughs> Just can't imagine the, uh, what that would be like. This is the funny part about like, uh, not necessarily the sustainable side of architecture, but my entire thesis when I graduated was about mass production and architecture. Um, so like, I, this is gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be hilarious. So we had a class that was like super, super, super like, you know, architecture philosophy type thing um, that uh, we were taking. And apparently, so when we first, first started the class, this is like last semester, um, you had to pick an object that sticks with you the entire class. So like for entire semester, you have this object. And based off every theory that you study every week, you have to alter that object um, and do something with it uh, based on the theories that you have. And I knew at that time that 
I wanted to work on like architecture and mass production. So I picked uh, I picked a solo cup. I think I told you, George, this. I picked a solo cup, and then I, ha- I was stuck with this fucking solo cup for an entire semester, where I have to like alter it based on like architecture theory that we're studying. So like, what does transparency mean? What is like being organic mean? And um, and so like I, at the end, I wish I have the photo. Maybe I should look into like my hard drives. So at the end of like the semester, I had like this squad of like fourteen solo cups that have holes in them that are different color that are like uh pressed that are just an insane freaking thing it, it it becomes more like i guess an art project than it's uh um than it's i don't know that it's this actual architecture but it, it it's funny because my entire thing was about like how can you create, well, one architecture that is modular, mass-produced, but then add on top of it a way for it uh, to be authentic in the place you leave it in. Um, Besides the fact that you can kind of, as you said, there are projects now where you can expand a house, so based on your needs, but can you pack it up and leave? You know, like there is a now, um, whatever we say about like Qatar and the World Cup, but there is a there is a stadium in Qatar now. Um, I think it's called 971 or whatever. It's whatever the area code for Qatar is. But the the whole plan of it is it's made out of containers. And the goal is like, okay, now the World Cup is over. Well, let's pack all these containers and create smaller stadiums in other places in Qatar or outside of Qatar as well. So like we kind of, the um dismantle like those or like um break down um the 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 stadium and create smaller stadiums and that's the whole goal of it which is awesome great if it actually works we'll see what happens after the world cup um because you know like most of the world cup stadiums i think in brazil or even even in and the, for the olympics in greece uh they become deserted like they um nobody uses them uh it's just a ghost town, the play, the area around them. So, like urban development-wise, it's totally lost and and not a great place to even build housing around it. Um, so, it's great if we can do that and and pack it up and move it somewhere else. But yeah, so my thesis was all about like, all right, so McDonald's wants to open up a new store. I don't know in in Middlebury, Vermont. Now, instead of like just going in and building and making this building and somewhere before they even know if this is the right location for them or not, can they create something that is super quick, sustainable? And But then I think the most important part is kind of somewhat authentic to the place you're actually building. Um, yeah, man, you're, this is, uh, you're bringing up some memories, but I, I, I liked it. It was all right, you know. It's like architecture projects. I'd be really curious to find out what happened with uh, the World Cup thing, <clears throat> because I remember there was a similar thing for the Olympics for the Zaha Stadium, um, and I think it was in London, if I remember correctly. And I, rem- from what I understand, the whole stadium was there, it was supposed to like break in half, where the roof and the top piece of it would like be dismantled and recycled. And the remaining piece would be a much smaller stadium that was like more reasonable for more events as i under as i understand it so it was it was uh 
it was for diving in the swimming. So it was like a, a long lap pool uh, with the sort of stadium on the side. So from what I understand, they were going to like, you know, change the configuration of it. But, but I don't really know if that was ever a thing. Um, but yeah, curious to find out more about the Qatar one too. And then back to the architecture piece, I, I'd be interested in getting your guys' perspective in terms of like, it seems to me, you know, since I've known you, George, you've shared with me a lot of examples of like really cool shit. And a lot of those examples have been like prototypes, right? Like one-offs, ideas, etc. And I have some guesses around this, but my question is like, with so many prototypes that I've seen so far, and I'm sure many more that I haven't, what are the parameters or the elements that stop that prototype going into mass production, right? My guess would be like, and maybe this is a little bit tinfoil hatty, but no, actually, I think it's plausible. Um, there are, whenever there's entrenched, innovation is usually stopped by entrenched interests, right? Like, in entrenched interests, you usually shy away from risk. I'm actually taking that quote from Peter Thiel, reading zero to one right now, which is fantastic. But um, what that means is that, like, you know, you've got a whole building industry that makes money from houses and the cost of things. Are you got architects and you got, you know, construction companies and all that stuff. And if we're making um, the end product cheaper, that means that the resources in which we're going to push into creating this product would also be cheaper and, and less mouths uh, would get fed. At least that would be the perception. That, that's my guess. Would I be on the right track with that? What do you think stops you know, these, these cool ideas from, from hitting, hitting the mass market? So I think um, you're right. I mean, you're onto something here that, yeah, most of the cool, quote unquote, cool stuff uh, that I would share is often prototypes or one-offs. Um, and I, that is for a couple of reasons. And this actually is kind of linked to <clears throat> the same thing that Amr said earlier about, you know, who is the client for these case study homes? And when it comes to, you know, America having to make homes and having, say, the government take care of that, how is that going to get done? So to me, it all comes down to the agency and the level of control that, that the architect has. And I don't mean creative control. I mean actual control over the production or the actual finished product, right? So, so in the case of, let's say, uh, that little, you know, that little modular home, there are too many restrictions at this point to be able to actually make that a plausible reality. The first is just being most people are not going to look at that and go, that's what I think a house looks like. And that's the biggest battle, right? If you can't get someone to buy the thing as it is, then they're just going to go somewhere else. And there is plenty of ubiquity out there for people to pick from because most people don't care, right? And I think that's the first part is that if people don't care what the thing looks like or what it is, then it's about price. And then that becomes this kind of recursive circle because how do you ever engage with the lower price point if you can't get these things to actually be moved and to be changed, right? I think that's, that's a big one. The second is similar, um, but I think it's about client when it comes to not the occupant, but rather the actual company or group or person that's going to actually take this kind of project on. The reason I, I bring that up as a, a very real problem is 
the agency thing about what the architect does and and how much they have control over is not just the, for their own posterity or for the sake of the profession. There actually is legal ramifications there. An architect is on the hook, or their firm is on the hook for 12 years after a building is complete for anything that fails in the building. So most innovations fail, right? So if you're going to be innovative and you're going to try to do something new in, in architecture, you have to financially be able to take the risk of anything on that project going wrong that you might be financially responsible for in some legal ramification later. And this isn't a selective thing. When stuff goes wrong on an architecture project, literally everybody gets sued. So it becomes a thing where it's too difficult to be able to actually, you know, get a mass amount of people to buy into this and be like, no, that's, that's okay. I'm willing to do this whole thing. So I think that's where there's a transition that happens from to Amr's point about like the, the American homes and who's the client on that. Right. In that case, we could have said, yes, let's have a manufacturing company make these, let's have GM make these homes, right? Let's, let's, let's get them going and, and the production line and all that sort of stuff with the war act and so on and have them do that. But instead they said, we need to build homes. And they didn't go to the architect and said, here, make a bunch of homes. They went to the services. They went to the people who they know who can make homes. Because when you ask the government to do one of these kinds of projects, they see it as job creation, right? So again, the goal of on the end sort of, um, final outcome is so distant from what the architect sees versus what the client or the, we'll say the, the payer or the buyer is actually going to perceive. So I think that there is a hurdle there when it comes to, if you are going to do something that's modular, right? At the end of it, it needs to somehow look and feel familiar enough for people to actually get buy-in. Um, one of the most famous projects from um, metabolism, which is what this whole kind of movement or sort of started as, which is kind of pieces to a whole in a, if you, in a way, uh, is a, a tower in Japan, which they're actually taking down now because the living units were designed and built off-site, all out of concrete, hoisted and, and sort of anchored into place. And big surprise, people don't love them. Um, and that, you know, not, not there, most of these projects, Habitat 67 is another one in Montreal where great idea for a project, super cool, you know, innovation, but at the end of the day, people kind of felt like concrete was cold and they just didn't want to live in. They wanted a home. They want, you know what I mean? So I think that there's a bunch of barriers. I'm starting to ramble here, which is where I'll wrap it up. But, um, I think you're onto something there about balancing in a way balancing ubiquity versus the innov like the innovation um and at what scale does that actually happen is it the whole house or is it just the kitchen kind of thing um so anyway more more food for thought morning morning guys um what's up Owanke? i wanted to like talk about your point Owanke. i i think uh, you definitely have a point um like as an industry, like if it's building or a construction industry, um, or even when you're talking about like, you know, cement companies, whatever, like wood <laughs> companies, like there's not their interest to like make, make things cheaper um, um, if they're benefiting. So if they're benefiting from the status quo. So that's absolutely right. I think there's definitely something in there. 
I do think there are like a lot more factors as well. Um, I think one of them is public perception, um, which is we are still trying sort of to convince folks to live in houses that look like that or kind of be self-sufficient or I think, I think it, it gets to the details of like, oh, this floor plan or like this, the, the outside look of the house that is not suitable for a specific area or a specific town. Um, or maybe even it gets to the families, right? Like I, I just don't, like, I don't think there's a lot of people who would say like, no, I don't, I don't want, I want to live in like super traditional house and, and, and that would be it. Uh, just like anything, I think you you start bumping head with people's lifestyle, and it becomes more of a problem. I think in house, for example, in houses, for example, as opposed to cars, um, where like a Tesla, you could literally kind of take it and drop it anywhere in the world, and it functions, and give it to any family, and and it still functions. But there is an under, there is an understatement that um, understanding that like. Tesla, you have it for an X amount of time. You can sell it. Um, you could sell a house, but I feel like you spend obviously more of your time in that house. And um, so it better be something that you actually are, um, are, comfort are, are comfortable with. So that's, that's one issue. I think public perception is still sort of changing around some of these issues and, and those modern houses um, or contemporary houses that we're that we're pushing out as concepts. Um, I had another point actually. Now I'm trying to like remember what it is. Um, I think another another issue is those concepts. I'm not sure they always take into consideration the the larger sort of problem. Um, I, I feel like they always solve a very specific thing and they end up like, George, you brought up a good point, which is Eames was, was the easiest one to like actually move around. But it was put in Southern California, never left, right? Um, I think part of that is it, like, I am not sure if they took into good, like while the idea was, hey, this is something that you can mass produce, mass produce, it never took into consideration how this will be mass produced, at least in the case studies houses, right? I I would like, and or like, or the solutions were not fully thought out. Um, I'm sure now, hopefully, I would assume like we're doing a better job um, with, with the with some of the concepts that we're pushing out, at least thinking about exactly like solving the problem and not saying like, Oh well, yeah. I'm I'm just gonna put some panels here, and you can find these panels at a at a Home Depot. No, like give me kind of a full on take on if a person not in Southern California and living live, lives in in Arkansas, how is this person going to be able to build their house or put it together? Um, so like full solutions, I don't think were ever really discussed. It was because of the style of the project. Um, yeah, I think I think I'm sure there's a lot more honestly to this. Uh, the funny part is like for the case study houses, I think the architects usually lived on those houses or they were even commissioned. So like, kind of it ended up being rich people living in these like modern houses. Um, but yeah. 
So I think, you know, just to follow that concept of the, the Eames house, right? Um, <clears throat> the one that can be taken apart and so on. You know, imagine if instead of it just being the house, it was the house wrapped with services, right? Like there's a certain practicality that I think is missing to the ability to move your house. One, there's the, no one has probably ever moved a house before, right? That's not something that you've done before. You've bought a house, sure. You may have sold a house, but moving a house is kind of a big thing, right? So there's, there's that. But so it's like, imagine if that was wrapped in services where it was like, we'll come move your house. You just let us know when and where and we'll move it, you know, and you get three moves or something per five years or whatever it might be. Like there could be ways of doing that. Um, the other thing I think to your point, Amr, about them kind of ignoring some of the real problems is, is that, you know, like any, any piece of architecture that's somewhat conceptual, it has to be rooted in something specific to be able to be valid in that way. Um, so, a, you know, a new thing to solve all problems becomes a problem in itself. So I think they had to kind of pick something to actually, you know, move forward with it. And each one of them suffered from different problems, right? I mean, all of them are leaky boxes and, and HVAC nightmares as far as trying to heat and cool them. But those are the more practical things too, especially if you are going to move a house. That thing needs to be able to connect to all the local services. You need to be able to hook up to water. You need to be able to fit within zoning. You know, it, there's, there's other practicalities about plenty of neighborhoods that just don't allow movable structures because a movable structure is an RV. That's the only closest thing or a trailer. Um, and because of, you know, basically high income people not wanting low income people living with them, they use zoning to keep that out. So there's, there's issues that make it such that even if you were to have one of these kind of really cool homes, there would have to be some other services or, or company that would manage where you can move them to. Um, or perhaps the exterior shell exists in multiple locations and they somehow move the interior where all of your stuff is so that it kind of, you could, it's like a trade or something that goes around, uh, around the world. Man, that, that is plenty, plenty food for thought. Um, up until now, I realized I've been thinking about supply side constraints um, and supply side realities. Uh, but what, what both yourself and uh, yourself, George, and, and what Amr have kind of laid out are some of the considerations on the demand side, which, you know, uh, I think it probably says a lot more about me in terms of, um, you know, my views uh, to the establishment. But I think you're, you're absolutely spot on, right? And, and maybe the demand side actually outweighs the supply side in this instance and in most instances where people kind of default to the comfortable and the known as opposed to, you know, um, things that are that are different and don't look normal. Um, and maybe that is also an equal or greater than force against innovation in this particular instance. And maybe that can be applied to like products as a whole. So just wanted to say, yeah, you've kind of opened up a, a, a new avenue of thinking, which uh, I hadn't really applied. So yeah, thanks. I thought that was really insightful. Hey there, listener. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast, Immaterial Thoughts, made up of voice memos between myself, Amr, and Wonke. 
We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to shoot us an email at hello at immaterialthoughts.show or, super cool, you can leave us a voice memo using the link in our show notes. Thanks again.